0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises payoff. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Today's guest is author Elsa Hunison. She writes and edits speculative fiction, and two years ago she won a Hugo Award. That's the most prestigious award in science fiction. It's pretty badass. Well now, Elsa has published a memoir. It's beautiful prose that attempts to capture her experience coming of age as a DeafBlind woman. And it's amazing. It'll make you question everything you assume about what it means to live with a disability. That's pretty much the point. Her book's called Being Seen, One DeafBlind Woman's Fight to End Ableism. Elsa's been deafblind since birth. That tends to conjure up one image for a lot of non-disabled people. Come on, who are you thinking of? Helen Keller? Early on in her school life, a creepy classmate wrote an essay comparing her to Helen Keller. It was a bad essay and a terrible comparison. Elsa's experience of her blindness and her deafness is her own. She is outspoken, adventurous, and extremely capable. And she's been that way her entire life. Elsa doesn't want non-disabled people to pretend disability doesn't exist. She wants disabled people to be welcome in the world and to be received with warmth and accommodation instead
1: of fear and rejection. Here's Elsa. I seem to stir things up wherever I go. Literally existing as a deafblind person out in the world becomes controversy. Having a visible disability in public is civil disobedience every time I show up for a work event or to teach in a second grade classroom about what it's like to be blind or sit down on a subway car and then pull out my Kindle because I want to read a book while I'm waiting to go from Brooklyn to East Harlem, (laughs) people are like, you have a white cane, you have hearing aids, but you're supposed to be like Helen Keller. Why are you existing in this body in the way that you do? And so I tend to just show up, leave a whole bunch of questions in my path and then leave, and I do it all while wearing very fun 1940s and 1950s day dresses because that's what I like to wear.
0: I've heard Elsa describe herself as a deafblind hurricane in a vintage dress, but
1: Elsa knows that a lot of people don't see her as that at first. When you think of an archetype, you think of sort of a cardboard cutout of what something is supposed to be, and so I think we have archetypes of blindness, If you watch Daredevil or In Darkness or any other movie with a blind character, you will ultimately see somebody reaching out and trying to grasp onto things to keep them anchored in place. You will see them not looking at people or things. You will see them staring. If you watch a movie about a deaf person, you will see them only sign. You will frequently not see oral deaf people. These are archetypes. These are the, the concepts that have been built by society to sort of make it easy to see disability in place. But you see it with wheelchair users too. Ambulatory wheelchair ex- users just don't exist in media. Everybody is constantly, and I use this word to illustrate, not to say what it is, confined to their chairs. But every wheelchair user I know thinks of their wheelchair as an independence tool. These archetypes are used to not just sort of confine people to their bodies in a way that don't make sense, but they're also used to make it easy for non-disabled people to view us. Well, so you have just written this marvelous memoir talking
0: about your experience in the world. So Elsa, what is your experience of blindness?
1: So I never tell people what my acuity is because I don't think it matters. I, I think that the numbers that the medical establishment gives you to describe how you see ultimately don't actually illustrate what you see. Mm -hmm. So I have uh, no sight in my right eye whatsoever. I can't see anything on the right side of my head, which means I have no periphery there. My left side has a restricted periphery. Um, I like to use a lot of camera terms because I think it helps sighted people understand in a way that doesn't really make sense for blind people because we don't always understand camera angles, but <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> it's weird. You have to use the language of vision to communicate lack of vision.
0: Which requires you to somehow be proficient in a foreign language because the language of vision was not one that you were ever given naturally in the way that I was as a fully sighted person. One of the
1: ways I like to talk about it is if you have an iPhone screen that like the edge of the the iPhone camera got cracked. That's one way of thinking about how I see. But I also don't have distance vision. In order to view art at a museum, I need to walk up to like a foot or less away from it to really appreciate how the artwork was done. A sighted person can stand far at the back and be able to see the Mona Lisa from behind the giant crowd that's crowding around her. And I can't do that. So I I think these are more illustrative of what it's actually like to live in my body.
0: So much of your life is simply living a life that people can observe and notice that they're completely wrong about how they thought about what it means to be disabled.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny, like the one that I always like to use, because you were talking a little bit about like the deafblind Hurricane and the vintage dress line, and I can kind of link this back. I've had more people compliment my partner or my ex-husband on the dresses that I wear and how well I dress because they assume that those people are the ones dressing me. Not that I'm dressing myself, which is a huge misconception about what blind people can do because blind people can dress themselves well. I am a consummate fashion nerd. I, okay. like everybody else, watched the Met Gala and had commentary. And <laughs> uh, my, my closet is filled with beautiful dresses that I love to wear because I picked them out. And I am somebody who loves fashion and loves to feel pretty. And I think some of that also comes from the fact that there's an expectation that I won't be. Uh, and by the way, for the listeners, here's a really neat tip. Go check out all of the blind and deaf-blind makeup tutorials on YouTube, because they're really good at what they do. And also, it will blow your mind to see people who cannot see putting on makeup more flawlessly than you can. <laughs> <laughs> Well that that leads me to
0: think about all the ways in which our culture shapes what we believe about ourselves. Right? Like you tell a little kid enough times that he's really great when he goes to the bathroom in the potty and he will stand up one day as my kid did yesterday and say, "I'm so great that I went to the bathroom in the potty." Now, think about your experience in the world. If the world tells you enough times that you shouldn't be able to do a whole host of things, what is it? That allows you to figure out that, heck, you can do them anyways. And it's the world that needs to change and not you. I'm
1: incredibly stubborn. (laughs) I I, I mean, I think that that's part of it. I'm really stubborn. I also will say that I do give my family of origin some credit here because they didn't treat me like I was disabled. And that's a double-edged sword. Uh, It did not help me 90% of the time. But the fact that my grandparents put me on skis when I was four and I had no depth perception kind of gave me this fearlessness that just sort of has carried me through. Do I think it was a bad choice to put me on skis at four with no depth perception? Absolutely, yes. I do not think that was a good choice. I wish they hadn't done it. But because I was raised by people who didn't see me as disabled, it handed me a fearlessness very early on. And other disabled people have that fearlessness in different ways. We have to cultivate it because we are being told to fear the world every day. We're being told that the world is too big and too scary and we can't handle it. And if you don't start to say, well, I don't care, eventually you will be sitting in a room by yourself not doing anything. Yeah,
0: well put. You speak very elegantly in the book about what schools do to people who are disabled and how important it is to look at schools before you begin to talk about the broader life and careers, because it's a lot of where this is manufactured. Tell us a little bit more about your educational experience.
1: Well, I will tell you that I was mainstreamed. I went to private schools that did not, as I mentioned earlier, have any kind of special education classrooms. I hate that term, by the way. I think we need to change it. But we didn't have any extra supports for disabled kids. What I got was you sit in the front row so that you can see the whiteboard, which, spoiler alert, I still couldn't. (laughs) Like, I have never been able to read a whiteboard. I don't think it served me very well. And I didn't have any way to communicate that to people like, hey, I can't see that because they would just not do anything. So I did my primary education, my, my sort of high, middle and high school education, mostly in private schools that did not have those supports. And then I went to public school for my last two years of high school because I more or less just got really tired of being treated differently because I had a disability without any kind of support. It turns out I can't really do math. Like math doesn't work in my brain in the same way that it does for everybody else. And I failed geometry three times, times in a row as an honor roll kid. What they did was they put me in detention so that I would study harder in math. And they got me a tutor, but like the, the tutor wasn't really able to communicate with me about geometry because my brain just looks at it and is like, I have no spatial skills. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are these abstract spatial skills and why are you expecting me to do them? I, I can't see what this kind of map does. Yeah. So I didn't have support really until I went to public school. And then the public school was like, yeah, you can't do this kind of math. We're more than happy to set you up with a different math class. Oh, you can't read that? Great. We will print it in large print because the public school was legally required and obligated to give me support. And it is that legal obligation that I actually want to pull up because I think a lot of your, your listeners are working in business. And I want to remind your listeners that legal obligation should not be why you do things for disabled people. Because then you are acting on accessibility support from a place of fear. And the way that we should be creating accessibility is actually from a place of what's right. So when you hear accessibility, people often associate it with, well, there's laws that make it, so we have to. What you should actually be doing is thinking, oh, this is actually just what makes the world functional for a disabled person so that they can participate in our community.
0: To just broaden that a bit, Elsa, I think that we miss out on a lot of the talent that is available to us when we don't make enough room at the table to bring in alternate perspectives. And one thing I took from your book was how much would be missing were you not to have figured out on your own how to participate in the world? And now you think about that at scale, and you begin to
1: understand something that we're missing out on. Here's where I get to be really honest. I've been looking for a day job for two years. I have not found one yet. Because it seems like every time I get to the end of the hiring process, people are like, oh, you need accommodations. And then I just never I never hear back after the interview. And it's so much that honest conversation that I tend to have with hiring managers where I tell them what my needs are in order to work for them, but that I'm really excited to meet those challenges and work with them. And I think I'd be a great hire somewhere. And for some reason, I think that there is that fear of like, oh, but we actually have to do those things for you. How do we make it work? Like that uncertainty is I think why a lot of disabled people don't get hired because hiring managers seem Like, they're really struggling to understand how it works practically in the working office world. I think that work from home changes a lot of that, or at least it should be changing the actual hiring practices because I will be a great person to work for you from my nice little office in my house. But you don't get that if you're not open to possibilities. And I think that hiring managers are often not open to the possibilities of disability as an asset.
0: Now, you also talk about. All of the times when, regardless of what is legally expected of a business, a business doesn't step up to meet it and makes it your fault anyways. And how how tragically painful it is. I mean, you talk about getting your guide dog in 2019 and having to argue to go into a
1: bar. Mm -hmm. It was a 20 minute conversation. uh, Well, argument on a street corner. And the host kept telling me that they didn't allow pets. And you were like, this is not a pet? He's not a pet. He's on a harness. He's literally laying down at my feet, snoring and drooling while you tell me that he can't be in your bar. All I want to do is pay you, I mean, it's New York City, it's $18 for a good cocktail. I, I'm literally coming to, like, pay you money for a good cocktail with my dog basically passed out on my feet. And he's not going to bother anybody. Also, your lighting is dark enough no one will notice. Like, <laughs> and well, they just refused, even though yeah. it's not
0: right. Well, so it got me to thinking about how much of your experience involves advocating for yourself, often in a very isolating way. And when we see people depicted in films and in literature, even people depicted well and fairly, that part just gets left out, despite the fact that that seems to be a fairly large part of your day-to-day
1: experience. Is that right? Oh, yeah. And any other disabled person will probably tell you the same thing. 90% 90% yeah. of my day is explaining, no, this is what I need. I, I finally got a good medical team for the first time in like 15 years this last year. And suddenly it went from explaining to the people at the front desk that I really couldn't read the tiny print on the forms to having large print forms provided for me when I walked in the door. Mm. Just not having to explain or ask for it took a huge amount of energy off of like, The table. I didn't have to expend it. But day to day for disabled people, there is constant explaining that has to happen.
0: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Elsa lets go of one dream and picks up a new one. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay And we're back. Elsa's passion for academia led her to pursue a master's degree. She was considering a PhD, too. But even with the protections of the Americans with Disabilities Act, her school didn't support her the way that it should have. And she realized her school wouldn't be the only place where this was true.
1: When I was sort of coming to the end of my master's, I realized that academia wasn't going to give me the support that I needed without a fight. And that would be another seven years. Of school where I was just fighting constantly to get to do what I loved. And once I got done with my PhD, was I going to be able to take a job anywhere? No, because I can't drive. So I had to take a job at a school where I could actually get to the school and have some kind of social life because there was no way I was taking a job in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest to teach history when I literally couldn't get from my house to my job. Right. So there was this restriction of choices that happened. So I stayed on the East Coast and I started writing. And that's just what I did. I, I started writing essays. I started writing for game design companies. I started writing and writing and writing. And my career just started to unfold. I didn't choose the writing life. It just kind of happened to me. And then I started taking it more seriously. I was like, oh, I'm actually good at this. Maybe this is what I need to do. So I started to focus and I got an agent. And from there, I've taught at universities as an adjunct, but it's always been a part of the writing staff. I consult with companies on what it's like to be disabled in the workforce. I've crafted a career that has centered around the idea that being disabled isn't a burden, that it's the idea that we're not welcome that's the burden. That piece I just want to spend some time
0: on because you very eloquently explain how from your, from your earliest days, the advice you got from well-meaning, ableist people was just hide that part of you if you can. Or if that part of you is going to keep you
1: from being able to try something that you love, go do something else. Why not? I remember very early on in my writing career, I was writing very explicitly about a chronic pain issue I was experiencing. And my mother actually texted me and she was like, you can't write about this in public. You'll never get a job again. And I remember just thinking to myself that, like, one, it was my decision how I talked about my body but it was also the realization that there probably would be consequences for the work that I do. And I even feel that today, like there will be consequences for the memoir. But I still wrote it and I still want it to exist because I believe that this is the work that needs to be done. You know,
0: at the end of your book, you start this one chapter. It's actually my favorite. From a literary perspective, I think it's my favorite three paragraphs. I just want to read it to you and maybe we can take a moment to to talk about it. It's chapter 15. And you write, Every disabled person has an origin story. Mine is that if it were not for a bunch of Wall Street jerks who refused to get vaccinated, I would be non-disabled. Some of my friends would be non-disabled. If it were not for one stray chromosome, others because they didn't have an incident with the truck. You, dear reader and dear Hello Monday listener, may someday have your own origin story. You could miss a stare. You could catch a disease. You could make friends with a metal straw. You could find yourself disabled in a matter of moments. If we stop looking at these as tragedies and start looking at them as a new way of being, maybe the power of disability stigma would falter just a little bit. Origin stories have resonance. They're what help us to understand who we are. So I love the way that that passage in the book, Elsa, invites our readers and our listeners to remember that this idea of abled and disabled is not nearly so binary as one might think, or rather that in a moment in your abled life, you may suddenly find yourself moving into the realm of the disabled. And I wonder if you can help us to think a little bit more about what the stakes are here and how, how you want us to walk away from having read this, like what our mandate
1: is. I think the mandate is to stop being so afraid of disability. A lot of people have discovered their neurodivergence during the pandemic because they have been sitting in their house for so long and they're starting to see their coping mechanisms just sort of crumble under the weight of the pandemic. And so I know a lot of friends, including myself, <laughs> who have discovered that they have ADHD <laughs> because yeah. suddenly all of the coping mechanisms that you've been using to sort of prop up your brain just stopped. There's this sort of like assumption that you're not disabled or that you you've never been disabled and I think a lot of people are actually experiencing the oh I'm autistic or oh I have ADHD right now. So you may have been living a disabled life without knowing it. That's that's one way of looking at that. Another one is to consider the effects of long COVID. There are a lot of people who've had COVID who are now experiencing disability because they got sick. And so we really need to, as a culture, stop being afraid of disability and start adapting to it because there's going to be a whole community of people who need us to step up and recognize the changes in our culture based on disabilities, some of which didn't exist before and some of which people didn't know they had. Like, that's, those are the stakes right now. And then there's also just the fact that there have always been deaf people and there have always been people who age into deafness or blindness. So if you are in your 30s and you think you're fine right now, give it 10 years, you may need glasses. Give it 15 years, you might need hearing aids. Like, rather than being being negative about it and saying, oh no, I have to wear hearing aids. How shameful. It's like, a tool that you will have if you need it. And I think that that lack of fear is really what I'm asking people to participate in. When you start to move into that realm,
0: you have to also take into consideration that this moment that we live in, 2021, is a pretty remarkable moment, that technology has enabled all of these tools if people choose to embrace them and exercise them in the right way to make it easier for all of us with disabilities that can be seen and that cannot be seen to
1: access community and participate in
0: the world differently.
1: The most remarkable thing that I got within the last 10 years was Bluetooth-enabled hearing aids. I can take phone calls now. I used to hate talking on the phone because I couldn't hear. It was like, this is distant and far away and I can't hear anything. My phone calls now stream into my ears at the correct volume because my hearing aids are amplifying the volume. I actually can take phone calls. That was never something that I could do. And so the technology is changing and it is enabling people to participate more in society, not less.
0: Yeah. Which is profound and uh, something to be hopeful about. But, and I mean, I feel like I've learned this over a lifetime of being a technology reporter. The tools are only the tools. These changes in technology mean nothing if we don't change as well, if we don't address ableism in our culture.
1: It's very true if we don't and also if we don't spend the time on making the technology accessible. Uh, I was talking with a client the other day and they asked me like, what I think the biggest change we need to make in tech does, in tech is? And my response was that people need to be curious instead of scared. Yeah, because I think that there's sort of like, oh, no, how will they use my technology if they're blind? And it's like, I don't know. Why don't you ask us? <laughs> <laughs> be, be curious. Be curious about the different kinds of ways in which disabled people use your technology, because that curiosity will actually give you joy in creating something instead of doing it out of sort of grudging. Well, I have to make it accessible. And here are the guidelines like get curious, get invested. That's how you, that's part of how you fix the problem.
0: That was Elsa Hunison. When I asked her what she wanted readers to take away from reading her book, how
1: she wanted them to feel, this is what she told me. If you pick up the book and you read it and it makes you angry, I want you to sit down with that anger and figure out why it makes you angry. Because I think that the anger is going to be coming from a place of having not understood the world. And once you've processed that anger, I want you to figure out what to do with it because that anger can be very useful and very powerful if you use it as a tool to make the world better for other people.
0: Elsa's memoir, Being Seen, is out now from Simon & Schuster. You can also visit her online at snarkbat.com. October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And here's a stat I learned when we talked about this in the edit room. Over 15% of people have a disability, and disabled people experience double the rate of unemployment that non-disabled people experience. Think about that. This week on Hello Monday's Office Hours, we're going to try a little something. Whether you're disabled or non-disabled, between now and Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, I'd love you to notice a bit of accessibility technology that makes your life easier, and then come to Office Hours and share it. And maybe you're thinking, I don't use any disability technology. I want you to really reconsider that. Look carefully at the technology that you use. Do a personal audit. I mean, Sarah Storm, our producer, she watches TV with the captions on no matter what. Do you? We'll go live like we always do at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, and we'll discuss it. To join the conversation, meet us on the LinkedIn news page or send us an email at linkedin.com, and we'll send you the link. And if you like the show, rate and review us, it genuinely helps us so much. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Taisha Henry. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florenzi Oriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer, Gianna Prudente and Ali McPherson help us ask better questions. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the Editor-in-Chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We're back next Monday. Thanks for listening. What are you hoping for this book?
1: I hope that people read it and they really start to engage as you sound like you have with what ableism has taught them. I really hope this book wins awards. I really do. And I want that because disabled memoirs and disabled books don't often get praise. They're sort of seen as like this special category of like, oh, we're going to read the disabled memoir and then it's going to inspire me. And what I actually want this to do is shift a cultural conversation. I don't want people to be inspired by this book.